Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Let's open up our Bibles to John, the seventh chapter. John chapter 7, we're going to read just a couple of verses there in just a moment. That will help to set up everything that we want to talk about for these next few minutes. So let's all be looking in the Word of God at John chapter 7 as we get underway in this part of our worship. What a beautiful day this has been, a beautiful Lord's Day, and I am so glad that I have had the opportunity to spend at least a portion of this day with you. We do once again have lots of visitors in our midst, and we're so glad that you've come to be with us. I even see some folks that have not been able to be out in a while. Great to see Calvin and Rena, just now seeing them as I'm standing up here. Uh, but just great to see everybody back again tonight as we have this second opportunity uh, to think about some things from the Word of God. I really do appreciate the good feedback that I received uh, in response to this morning's sermon, and i got to tell you, one of the most encouraging things that you could say to me, or probably even to any preacher, uh, by way of, of compliment or encouragement, is to say that that lesson was helpful, that it helped me in some kind of a specific way. And I had some folks say that to me this morning, and I thank you for that, and I hope that that will continue to be the case even this evening as we look at part two of what is a very historic Q&A day. The first time Q&A had to be broken up into two parts, and so tonight you're getting the second half of that equation. That all begins in John, the seventh chapter, where there is some plotting that's going on by the chief priests and the Pharisees. They're seeking to arrest Jesus because Jesus has been teaching some things that apparently they don't like, and it's causing a commotion and a ruckus amongst the multitudes. And so we read in John chapter 7 and in verse 50 that Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of them, that is, he was one of the Pharisees, he said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? This morning we confronted one of the most common charges that is made against the Lord's people And usually it is couched within the form of a question, and it's this question right here. Does the church of Christ think that they are the only ones going to heaven? That is a widely held impression that lots of folks have of us, that we think that we are the only ones within the religious world who are right, and that then means that everybody else is wrong. And since we believe we're the only ones that are right, well, that means we're the only ones going to heaven. And by default, that means everybody else is going to hell. And such thinking, or at least such suspected thinking, is seen to be just the height of bigotry and narrow-mindedness. And it just reeks of, of arrogance and prideful superiority. And we talked about this morning what a challenge it is. To be confronted with that question, to engage and to try to formulate some kind of a response to that accusation and to be able to do that in a Christ-like manner. And so what we did in the morning hour was we laid out nine key principles that help us in our attitude, that help us in our approach, that help us in our understanding of where people are and where they're coming from whenever they do ask that question. And I concluded with that ninth and last admonition for us to take our time whenever we go about addressing that particular question. This is not the kind of conversation. You get asked that question, this is not the kind of conversation that can just be banged out in the next 60 seconds and, well, we took care of that, didn't we? No, that's probably not going to happen where everybody's able to leave the conversation with an accurate and clear understanding of God's will pertaining to the church and pertaining to salvation. What this requires, this question requires, is it requires some time. It requires some study. 
It requires some critical thinking. It requires some deep discussion. That simplistic yes or a simplistic no, that is not going to suffice. We're going to have to give some proper defenses and a proper explanation of what we truly believe. And that takes some time. Which means we're just asking for a fair hearing. In fact, isn't that what Nicodemus was pressing for there in John chapter 7 and in verse 51? Nicodemus says, hey guys, you can't just condemn Jesus on nothing more than hearsay evidence. No, you need to give Him a fair, objective hearing. You need to hear these things straight from the source and then, then you can draw your conclusion. And that's all that we're asking for. So many times we get ladled with this this concept and it just gets shoved on us and people just believe whatever they want to believe without ever going straight to the horse's mouth to get the information that they need. What we're asking for is we're asking for a fair hearing. And I realize that not everybody who comes and asks us that question is going to be interested in giving a fair hearing. They're not interested in having a fair and honest and balanced discussion. But I will say, there are people who are sincere when they ask that question. And there are people who really do want to know what we believe and where we're coming from. And so we're just asking for the opportunity to have a fair and unbiased discussion. And when that opportunity presents itself, the question is, how are we going to respond? Hopefully in the first part of the lesson, and if you weren't here this morning, you get on the podcast and you can listen to part one. Hopefully we've already got some of those attitude things in their proper place where they need to be. Now we're ready to maybe start talking about some specific nuts and bolts. And that is this evening what I want to spend the next few minutes thinking about a little bit. How can we guide that conversation? If we get the opportunity to have a substantive conversation, how can we guide and bring that along in a fruitful and productive way? The truth is, we're probably going to have to start that conversation by defining our terms and by getting a little bit of clarity about the question itself. Whenever somebody asks that question, does the church of Christ think they're the only ones going to heaven? In all likelihood... They are speaking a completely different language than we would be speaking. Because what they mean by church of Christ is probably very, very different than what we would mean if we were to use that term. Which means you could actually give an answer and be completely right based on one definition. But you could also give another answer and be completely wrong based on a different definition of that term. For example, if someone comes and they ask the question, hey... Does the church of Christ think they're the only ones going to heaven? And by that they mean the one true universal church that belongs and is owned by Jesus Christ? The answer to that is what? The answer to that is yes. Absolutely yes. Only people who are a part of that one body of Christ are going to be saved and are going to go to heaven. But if on the other hand somebody comes to you and they ask that question, is it true? That only members of the church of Christ are going to be saved. And by that they mean, is it true that only members of the Lakeside Church of Christ, the congregation that meets at 500 Ritchie Lane, Somerset, Kentucky, 42503, only they are going to heaven? What's the answer to that? The answer to that is no. Absolutely not. There are saved people all over the place. All over this city, all over this county, all over the state, all over the country, all over the world. And so where we probably want to start this entire discussion is just by asking the question, well, what do you mean 
by the church of Christ. But what do you mean by that? Who or what are you talking about? Who exactly are you referring to? Who is it that you have in your mind whenever you ask that question? And interestingly, most of the time when you ask your neighbor or your coworker or your friend that question, can you, can you specify what you mean by the church of Christ? Interestingly, they're probably not thinking of either of those two definitions that I just gave a second ago. They're not thinking of the universal church, the saved of all time. Nor are they thinking of a local church of Christ, the saved who meet together here at 500 Ritchie Lane. Usually, whenever your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers are using that term church of Christ, what they're thinking of is they are thinking of a denomination. They mean you folks down there in the church of Christ denomination. In fact, sometimes, and I, I, I hate to say this, but it needs to be said, Sometimes I even hear us, I hear Christians feeding into that line of thinking by just the way that we communicate and the way that we talk. Sometimes you'll hear Christians say, I'm Church of Christ. Stand in a group of people and somebody says, well, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Methodist, and then what do we say? I'm Church of Christ. Folks, number one, that is grammatically ridiculous. It just sounds stupid. But on top of that, it is completely foreign to the Bible. That is the language of Ashdod. And we hear that all the time. Oh, he's a Church of Christ preacher. Or, you know, I've been Church of Christ all of my life. What is that? What kind of talk is that? And it is that kind of talk that just helps to reinforce what most people already believe about us and that that the Church of Christ, yep, they're just another denomination. And so ultimately, before we can ever even talk to anybody about who it is that's going to be saved and who it is that's going to go to heaven, what we need to do is we need to show them, biblically, that there is no such thing as a church of Christ denomination. Now you might be thinking to yourself right now, well, well, that'll be easy. I know the verses to go to. We'll just go over to Matthew 16, verse 18, where Jesus talked about the one church that He was going to build. We'll jump over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, that talks about the one body. And hey, that'll just take care of that. Don't be so sure about that. Do you know how old denominationalism is? The Baptist denomination, for example, which is probably the most populous denomination uh, throughout South Central Kentucky, it began back in 1612. You know what that means? That means that that denomination, it is older than America itself. When Christopher Columbus, when he sailed the ocean blue back in 1492, there were already denominations all over the continent of Europe. Which means then that no American has ever been born without the proliferation of denominations just ingrained into their mind and into the culture. And so the idea of us responding to this question by saying, well, well, we're non-denominational. That just goes right over folks' heads. That does not compute. Why? That does not fit with the way that organized religion has been thought of and viewed in this country since its very inception. We live in a society that has a completely denominational mindset toward Christianity. And so, let me just borrow from this morning's sermon 
And let me provide you with a picture, an illustration, something you can put in your mind of how it is that most Americans view this whole concept of church. Imagine, imagine that there is a box. I used a circle this morning, but a box is the amount of, that's what I had space for, so I'm going to use a rectangle this evening. We're going to use this rectangle. And imagine that that red rectangle is where all of the saved people are. Everybody who professes faith and claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, they are inside that box. And that means then that everybody else who is outside of that box, maybe kind of floating over here where the curtains are and in some of this area over here, well, that would mean that those folks, those folks are lost. Those are the folks who are outside of Jesus. They are not in a good spiritual condition. And so we can already see right here. You can see it right there on the screen. I've got it put up there in that little box within the box. The only prerequisite to being inside that box in American way of thinking is to just believe in Jesus. If you just believe and accept Jesus as being God's Son, as being the Christ, you get to be in that box. If you believe in Jesus, then you get to leave the the helpless void of being out here outside of the box. And you get to gain entrance into that red rectangle. You get to enter into the salvation of it. And you are then bordered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, that's the way, more than likely, your neighbor, your co-worker, your friend, is generally thinking, whenever they conceive in their mind the idea of Christianity, that Christianity is just you believe in Jesus and you're saved and you get put into that box. And once you then decide to believe in Jesus, to have faith in Jesus, well now what you need to do is now you need to pick a church. But they don't mean the one church. No, that's what that big red box is. The big red box is the one church. And they don't even mean a local church. No, they mean you need to pick a denomination. And so now you've got to decide what kind of believer you're going to be. Do you want to be a Presbyterian believer? Do you want to be a Catholic believer? Do you want to be a Mormon believer? I know I don't have Mormon up there on the screen, but there's some that would want to put them in there. All right, You just take your pick there. And the truth is, it really doesn't even matter which category of believer that you want to be. Because, look, They're all in the red box. They're all in there. They're all in Christ. They're all in Jesus. Do you see there? Do you see how all that works in the mindset of the denominationalist? So here we are. Look at us over here. We got our own box over here. We got the Church of Christ box fit in there. And I don't know why anybody would ever want to be a part of that particular box. I mean, come on, those folks in that box... What they teach, it is so exclusive. It is so restrictive. They teach things like the necessity of baptism to be saved. They practice the weekly observance of the Lord's Supper. They're opposed to instrumental music and worship and things like that. I don't know why anybody would choose to be in that box, but some people choose that. But you've got to pick a box. And of course, once you've picked your box, well, then you need to choose which congregation you want to attend, and that you want to be a part of. You can go to that one that's down there at 500 Ritchie Lane. Or you could go, hey, you don't have to just go to that one right there. You can go this one up here, maybe over here in Eubank. Or you can go to this one up here in Danville. Or you keep going even further north, you can find you one up in Ohio or someplace else like that. 
You just pick the place that you want to go, where specifically you want to identify with. And once again, it really doesn't matter which one that you pick because, well, because they all pretty much look the same. And once again, they're all within the big red rectangle of salvation. But you just pick your category of church. You pick your particular group you want to identify with. And somebody may be wondering, is there some kind of hidden meaning behind the colors that were chosen for each of those groups? No, there is not. Although I did get to thinking afterwards, maybe there was something Freudian going on in my mind by putting the church of Christ in black once again. We're the black sheep of this equation. But you believe in Jesus and you then become a part of the saved. Then you decide what flavor of Christian you want to be. Then you pick a local church to worship and identify and work with. This is how the world sees the church. It is a purely and thoroughly denominational point of view. Which means then that you Church of Christ folks that are over down here in the corner... The idea that you get up and you teach and you teach very strongly that you must be baptized in order to be saved. And the idea that you believe all the rest of us who do not teach that very same thing, who do not teach that baptism is essential for salvation, the fact that you would believe that and promote that, that is pure idiocy. I mean, come on. Did you not notice the rectangle? We're all in the rectangle. Why would you think that any of the rest of us are in a wrong relationship with God when we're all in this big red box together? Do you see now? Do you see the challenge that we're up against whenever we're presented with that question? Do you understand now why I said this morning, it is a loaded question? Because unless you can explain to somebody what is wrong with that picture then just forget ever convincing anybody to change their beliefs, to change their practices, to change the way that they're doing business with God. Because denominational thinking doesn't even need to entertain any of those ideas. I mean, come on. Why do I need to worry about how I worship? I'm in the red box. Why do I need to worry about how I was baptized or what was the reason for my baptism? I'm in the red box. What does it matter whether our church has a woman preacher or whether we eat the Lord's Supper once a month or once a year? Come on. We are already in the red box. And so right here, right here is precisely where we have to start. Because before you can help anybody to have a correct understanding about Christ, about His church, and about how salvation works then you're going to have to deconstruct denominationalism piece by piece in the mind of the denominational list. Otherwise, otherwise nothing else is going to matter. And right here is where I'm going to suggest that we need to begin. We need to begin by just making it abundantly clear that biblically speaking, denominationalism is just flat wrong. That it is not God's plan. That it is not right If we are in a church of Christ denomination, then we are wrong and we need to repent of that. If there is a Methodist denomination, if there is a Baptist denomination, if there is a Catholic denomination, then they are wrong and they need to repent. And you can go right on down the list with every other denomination that exists. The concept of having separate groups with separate beliefs, yet they all still kind of look similar. I mean, remember, we're all in the big red box. 
Yet they are fundamentally and doctrinally different in faith and in practice and in doctrine. And we're then supposed to accept that, hey, we're just kind of all in this together. We're all in the big box. That is a direct violation and contradiction of what the New Testament clearly teaches. And so what does that mean? Let's break it down. Three things. Number one, number one, it means, nah, it's giving all my stuff all at once. We'll just go with it anyway. Number one, it means that division is not God's will. Can you imagine saying to Jesus, would you find John 17? Can you imagine saying to Jesus as He was praying this prayer in John 17, Hey Jesus, we decided that everybody who professes faith of some kind in You, they're in. They get to be in. They're in. They're they're saved. They're part part of Your body. No ifs, no ands, no buts. And then once they're in... They get to decide what they want to believe and how they want to practice out their faith. And if they want to believe baptism, well, well, that's fine. And if they want to believe in, in homosexual clergymen, well, that's fine too. If they want to believe in handling snakes, hey, that's A-OK as well. And you know what? If there's not already a box that we can fit somebody with those peculiar set of beliefs, if there's not already a box to fit them in, hey, well, we'll just make a new one. You know, don't you, there's not just eight boxes out there. There's like 20,000. I just didn't have room to put them all on the screen tonight. But even though we're all doing all this different stuff, we're all doing it in your name, Jesus. How about that? What do you think Jesus' response to that would be? Look in John 17. This is what Jesus prayed. And I want you to remember, this is shortly before Jesus is going to go to the cross and He's going to die for the sins of the whole world. Of all the things that could have been on his mind, this was one of the preeminent things on his mind that he prayed for that night. John 17, verse 20, he said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Can you imagine the Father and the Son having completely different beliefs, just totally seeing everything differently. God's over here thinking one thing and Jesus is over here thinking something completely different. And then they decide that, well, the way we'll just deal with that is, well, we'll have, we'll have a left heaven and we'll have a right heaven. And when you get to heaven, if you kind of tend to like the way God the Father does things, well, you go over here to the left heaven. And if you like the way that Jesus says things and the way He does stuff, you go over here to the right. right. Ah, no! No way! The Father and the Son, they are in complete unity, perfect synchronicity in what they believe and in what they teach and in what they command. And Jesus says, that's how I want you to be as well. You want to be a believer in me? You want to be a follower of me? Then you need to have that same attitude. And that is exactly why when congregations in the first century, when they started to show signs of partyism and division, look in 1 Corinthians 1, when people started saying things like, oh, you know, well, well, well we kind of favor this guy's teaching. And others said, oh, well, well, we really like the way that this guy does business. Or, you know what, well, we really like this brother's perspective and we like the cut of his jib. And the result of that was that people started, started splintering. Congregations started to kind of segregate a little bit. I want you to know that in the Bible, that division, it is utterly condemned. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, I don't know how much plainer Paul could be. He says, I appeal to you brothers. I'm I'm begging you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree 
and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. What would Paul think of Somerset, Kentucky in 2019? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what a conversation would be like with Paul talking about how things are in this geographical area of the world today? Paul may be asking, well, how many churches are meeting and doing things in Jesus' name in Somerset, Kentucky in 2019? I think there's maybe about 50 or so, maybe this very day by my count. Hmm, okay. How many of those are holding and professing and practicing different beliefs among those 50 or so groups? Hmm, I don't know. Probably 25 or 30 of them, if not more. Oh, so Paul would ask, so you don't all agree? Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 we do not all agree. So you're saying that all the people who profess faith in Jesus' name, that they are divided? Oh, yes, Paul, yes, we are very divided. What would Paul say about that? Paul would say, that cannot happen. That is not God's will. No divisions among you. How much simpler of language could one use? Paul would say you need to figure out how to be united in Jesus Christ. Because people who perpetuate division, people who cause division, those who do that kind of thing in the body of Christ, they will incur the wrath of a holy God. You read Proverbs chapter 6 and in verse 19, talking about the things that God hates. It's not a real extensive list, but the last thing on that list is those who sow discord, division amongst God's people. Division does not fly. And since division is not biblical, then just by necessity, that means that denominations are not biblical. Jesus only built one church. I appreciate the the math that the Bible uses here. Even the very simplest of minds, little kids, they, they know how to hold up the number one. Ask a little child, how old are you when they're one? They can hold up one finger. Jesus built and established one church. We read Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 this morning. Upon this rock, I will build my church. It is the one universal body of saved people who are under Christ's protection and who are under Christ's authority. You can add to that Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Connect that to Ephesians 4, verse 4. That speaks of just one church. If somebody, if I'm engaging in this conversation with somebody, and they're asking me about the one body, hey, I'm ready to talk about that. Because there's some scripture for that. That's a biblical idea. And even if somebody is talking about local congregations of that one church, that too is a biblical idea. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, the church at Corinth. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 1, the church at Thessalonica. Those are the only two senses in which the church is talked about in the entirety of the New Testament. And so if somebody's coming along and they're talking about the idea of church in some other sense, in a denominational sense, all of these various subsets of Christendom, and you're talking about something that is completely foreign to the Bible. I, I don't have anything to say about that. The Bible doesn't have anything to say about that because it has no biblical basis whatsoever. And that is because, thirdly, doctrines do matter to God. You want to ask, well, what's the reason division is wrong and terrible? What's the reason that denominationalism is such a bad thing? 
It's because God actually cares what we teach, what we believe, and what we practice. Look at Matthew 28. There's a lot of different verses we could have thought about, but I I like Matthew 28. It seems like a good catch-all passage. In Matthew 28, Jesus Himself, as He was here upon this earth and as He was going about His earthly ministry, He did not teach differing, conflicting doctrines. And yet, even as I say that, you know and I know that churches today, or at least groups that would call themselves churches, Churches today do that very thing. All teaching different stuff. All teaching conflicting, contradictory stuff. How in the world can that be? Well, evidently there has been a departure from what it was that Jesus commanded before He was to ascend back into heaven. Matthew chapter 28 and in verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you want to know the difference between the denominational mindset and the mindset of a true disciple of Christ? Where do you turn whenever there is a disagreement about what to teach or what to believe or what to practice? Do you turn to the religious organization? Do you turn to the pastor of that group? Do you turn to the clergy or whoever it is that's in charge of those places? Hey, what do we believe about that? What does our particular group, what do we teach about that? Or on the other hand, do we just turn to the one who has all authority? Do we turn to Christ? What what does Jesus say? What did Jesus authorize? That is the standard for our teaching and our beliefs and our practices. Can I just say right here, kind of as a bonus, do not ever come to me and ask the question, Brother Josh, what does the Church of Christ believe about... Fill in the blank. What does the Church of Christ believe about marriage, divorce, and remarriage? What translation of the Bible does the Church of Christ read from? I've been asked those questions before. And what I want to say is, What? What are you talking about? Why would you ask such a question as that? I'm not interested in the official position of some religious organization. I'm interested in what Jesus taught. I want to hear what Jesus instructed. That is the only way that we will ever have unity here upon this earth. In Galatians chapter 1 and verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, Paul said that there would be people, even in biblical times, and it is true even today, People who would come with other so-called Gospels. And Paul says, don't you receive them. Why shouldn't we receive them? Maybe they're able to give us some new interesting insight that, that the other brothers didn't bring us. No, Paul says, there cannot be multiple doctrines. There is only one. There is the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And we need to be diligent to just steer people back to the Scriptures. If you're engaging the question about... What's the church of Christ believe, thinking they're the only ones going to heaven? And it is just bereft of Scripture. The other person is not interested in talking about Scripture. At some point, you're just going to have to say, this discussion is done. Because all I've got, the only thing I can bring to this discussion is what the Bible says. And that's where we want to point folks to. We want Scripture to determine truth, not what some man or some group determines. And so, in light of those three fundamental truths, 
Can we go back to that diagram? And I'm hoping the diagram is going to do what I spent a lot of time this afternoon trying to get it to do. And let's just take that diagram and let's just start stripping it of the things that don't belong there. We want to try to have a substantive conversation. So let's take that. We see that that's wrong. So that's problematic with things that the Scriptures teach. So what can we do with that? Well, how about we start? How about we start by just, oh, yes. Let's just strip away all the names. We're not Church of Christers. We're not Baptists. We're not Mormons. We're not Presbyterians. We're not Methodists. Sometimes folks will ask, you know, you know, y'all put an awful lot of emphasis on the name. I don't put a lot of emphasis on the name. I don't go around telling folks I'm Church of Christ or I'm a Church of Christ Christian. There's no biblical basis whatsoever. I appreciate biblical designations. I'm very happy that on our sign out front it says the Lakeside Church of Christ. It just shows who it is that we belong to. That's all we're saying. And it is a biblical designation. And it's good for us to use that. But you know what? For the sake of trying to help folks get to where they need to be, let's just remove the names. Let's just get those out of the way right now. And since we're getting rid of the names, since we're no longer I'm a this or you're a that, how about as well, how about we get rid of all the lines as well? We don't need that, do we? If we actually believe that we are all in Christ then why are we dividing up into all these various categories of believers? Hey, if we really are in Christ, then, then let's talk that way. Let's, let's act that way. And actually, since we're talking about being in Christ, then let's just go ahead and reevaluate that whole process as well. Let's just remove that little thing from the rectangle. Because instead of just going along and saying, well, everybody who believes in Jesus, they're saved, how about we go back and recalibrate? Since we're interested in what the Bible says, let's go back to what the Bible says about how a person gets inside the big red rectangle. And while we're at it as well, how about we get rid of all the colored dots? Not a fan of all the colored dots. Don't like all those colors. I'm a blue Christian. Oh yeah, well I'm a yellow Christian. Or maybe the idea that, you know what, our little group over here, we've got nine million little yellow dots. And you all over there, you all only got 50. So I guess we win. No. Let's forget that. Let's forget the name. Let's forget lines. Let's forget circles and dots. Let's just go back to there is a red rectangle. And everyone who is outside of it is lost. And everyone who is inside of it is saved. Do you know then what we would call, what the Bible would call, that red rectangle? It is the one body of Jesus Christ. It is His church. And if you're talking to somebody, and if you think you've maybe fostered and built up some goodwill, and you think you can kind of push it a little bit further, maybe you would even say, it is the church of Christ. And it is. It is the church that belongs to Jesus. And I will tell you, if you are able to get that far In your discussion, if you are able to be granted a fair hearing as Nicodemus petitioned for, and if you're able to lead the conversation to this point, good for you. You will have done very, very well. Because the next logical question then simply becomes, how do we get into that box? We stripped away the the idea and the thought that it's just kind of easy believism. You just believe in Jesus and you get to be in the box. No, Scriptures seem to speak of something much more. How do we get in 
to Jesus Christ. In fact, as we extend the invitation of the Lord, I can't think of any better thing to end with. How do you get into Christ? Well, you do have to believe. You have to believe that Jesus is sent from God, that He is God's Son, that He came to this earth, He put on skin, put on flesh, lived as a man, endured all the pain and the trials and the sufferings of living the human life, living in this physical realm. And then He died. And He didn't just die just, you know, of old age or of an accident. No, He gave His life. Sacrificed Himself on the tree of Calvary. Do you believe that? Do you believe those things? Do you believe as well that He rose from the grave on the third day and in so doing He is declared to be the Son of God with power? Romans 1 says. If you do believe that, then what the Bible says you need to do is you need to confess that. You need to say that publicly. You need to make that known. Make that confession not just once, but throughout all of your life that Jesus is Lord and He is King. The Bible also says you need to repent. Jesus Himself taught that you need to repent. That was the first word of the Gospel. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You need to turn your life around, turn away from sin, and turn to the Lord. And then you need to be baptized. We, we, don't, we don't preach baptism because that's a, that's a church of Christ thing. We teach baptism because that's what Jesus taught. That's what the Bible says. We just want to do what the Bible says and we want to do what Jesus says. Can we help somebody this evening to be immersed in water and have all their sins washed away and become simply a Christian, not some hyphenated name of a Christian, a Methodist Christian, or a Presbyterian Christian, just a Christian, a simple follower of Jesus Christ. The Lord will add you to His church, to His body. You can get on that road that leads to heaven. If somebody wants to just ask the question, are only members of the church of Christ going to go to heaven? What's the Bible say? You come to the conclusion. What does the Word of God say? And if you're honest with yourself and you're not part of the Lord's church, then right now, you will do something about that. And You'll do that by coming to the front and making your wishes known right now while we stand and while we sing.